I'm Rachel, the creative director for Ram Dass's Love Serve Remember Foundation, and I'd like to welcome you to our Inner Academy, a virtual Dharma Hall where our family of wisdom teachers will help you navigate your daily life by bringing ancient wisdom into a modern context. With over 200 hours of audio and video teachings, meditations, and practices from teachers like Ram Dass, Krishna Dass, Sharon Salzberg, Jack Kornfield, Roshi Joan Halifax, Joseph Goldstein, and many more, the Inner Academy is your core resource for finding balance, presence, and navigating the ups and downs of your daily life. The Inner Academy has guidance for every step of your journey. Choose from an annual or monthly membership and gain access to past and future courses, retreat replays, virtual community, and much more. If you've been familiar with Love Server Member Foundation for a while, you'll know that most of our offerings are given freely or on a sliding scale basis. So when you subscribe to the Inner Academy, you're paying it forward and bolstering our ability to continue creating accessible offerings for all in the future, as Ramdas wished for us to do. Be here now and start your journey with Ramdas's Inner Academy today. For more, visit ramdas.org forward slash Inner Academy. Teaching meditation can be a deeply rewarding experience. Help others improve their mental and emotional well-being reduce stress, improve focus, increase self-awareness and self-regulation, all while deepening your own practice and understanding. Join acclaimed author, Buddhist teacher, and Emmy Award-winning musician David Nickturn on Tuesday, May 28th at 6 p.m. Eastern Time for a free online discussion on teaching meditation in Dharma Moon's renowned Mindfulness Meditation Teacher Training Program. Get certified by Dharma Moon to teach meditation lead group practice sessions, and work with individual students. Visit dharmamoon.com slash be here now for more info and to reserve your spot for the free online event with David Nickturn on May 28th. Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app today to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. Welcome to the Metta Hour with Sharon Salzberg, where Buddhist wisdom meets everyday life. This podcast is brought to you by the Be Here Now Network and features interviews with the top leaders, teachers, and thinkers of the mindfulness movement and beyond. For more information, visit BeHereNowNetwork.com backslash Sharon. Hi, I'm Sharon Salzberg. I'm speaking today with Danny Shapiro. Danny is the author of the New York Times bestselling memoir, Inheritance, which was published in January 2019 by Knopf. Her other books include the memoirs Hourglass, Still Writing, Devotion, and Slow Motion, and five novels, including Black and White and Family History. Along with teaching writing workshops around the world, Danny's taught at Columbia and New York University, and is the co-founder of the Sirenland Writers' Conference in Positano, Italy. Danny is also the host of her own podcast, Family Secrets. 
launched in February of 2019 in collaboration with iHeartMedia. The podcast features stories from guests who, like Danny, have uncovered life-altering and long-hidden secrets from their family's past. Welcome to the podcast, Danny. Thanks, Sharon. It's so great to be with you. It's great to be with you. You know, I have a, a long, smoldering desire to study writing with you someday. So oh. someday conditions will will yeah. allow, which would be really great. I have great, um, even though I've written so many books, I have so I have such a sense of a path in life, like a path out of suffering or path of meditation that it, it's very akin to just admiring the craft. I'm sure there are there's so much that I don't know, and it would be kind of fun. Oh, to I, learn. I would, I would love nothing more. I would be so honored. But you're, you're a beautiful writer. You know what's so interesting though is that whatever our thing is, that's, you know, that's what we end up doing. Right. right. So, uh, congratulations on your recent book release. It's always a tremendous moment to celebrate, and it's kind of an odd time to have a book come out, as I experienced myself last September. Yeah, I mean, I I feel fortunate that Inheritance, the hardcover publication of Inheritance was January of 2019. Mm -hmm. So I was able to have really more than a full year of launching that book into the world Mm -hmm. and even launching the paperback into the world before things got very, very strange Mm -hmm. in in the world of launching anything into the world. So have you always wanted to be a writer? Like I would say when I was a child, if someone said to me, what do you want to be? I would say a writer. I didn't know what it meant, you know, but it was mm. in there. I always wrote and I always, you know, I was one of those kids who read everything that I could get my hands on, you know, voraciously and under the covers with a flashlight. But I didn't know that being a writer was something possible for anyone, uh, you know, much less for me. I didn't grow up in um, a milieu where I knew any writers or any artists. Um, I grew up in suburban New Jersey, and um, my parents didn't really know uh, writers and artists, even though uh, they were readers and, um, and they appreciated art. So it felt like an impossible thing. Um, I mean, it's, it's easy to kind of reverse engineer it and, and say that I always wanted to be a writer, but I, I just don't think that I knew that I could be, even though I think I was always a writer in the sense that writers are people who, um, need to kind of grapple with the page in order to know or understand what we're thinking and Mm -hmm. what we're feeling and to make sense of the world. And that was certainly something I always did, but I didn't know that I could spend my life doing that. And so writing came uh, before your meditation practice, right? Well, before, yeah. yeah. I mean, what happened was um, there were, you know, there were some happy accidents as I think of them. And one was that when I was applying to college and I was applying early after my junior year in high school, I just really wanted, needed to kind of get away. Um, and, um, I applied to a bunch of different schools, but one of them was Sarah Lawrence 
which was a school that no one in my high school had ever gone to. Um, I had had a babysitter um, as a child who I loved who had gone to Sarah Lawrence. And really like that had kind of stuck in my mind. And then I looked it up and the description of it was, you know, in one of those alternative college guides was something like, you know, a really good school for, you know, like neurotic people (laughs) anywhere. (laughs) Maybe they'll fit in here. And I thought that's for me. And, Mm -hmm. uh, and I was accepted and, and I even was tempted by other schools. I mean, I got into Barnard as well, which was crazy Mm. because I really wasn't that good a student and I was very young. Uh, And there was a lot of pressure on me to go to Barnard because it was Barnard. Um, But I had that, that feeling, that sixth sense that, that, that was going to be like too much, too fast, too urban for me. And so um, I went to Sarah Lawrence and as it turns out, um, it had an amazing writing program and because of where it's located just north of New York, New York city, um, there were a lot of working writers who were teaching there. And so I got to have that modeled for me and Grace Paley was teaching there and, um, Esther Broner was teaching there and, um, a, a, a brilliant novelist named Jerome Badanis was teaching there. And these people became my mentors and my role models. So suddenly I had this sense that a writing life was possible for some people, although not necessarily for me. I didn't know if I, you know, I, I just, it's such an audacious thing. Mm-hmm. It, it's such a, a leap. Um, and it requires um, a kind of combination of permission and belief in oneself, but not too much belief. Uh, and, um, you know, the sense that, that, you know, that, that, that you have something to say that, 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 um, that you can find the language for. And I, I don't, I don't think I felt that yet. It really wasn't, it was a, it was kind of a rocky road. I, I, I was at Sarah Lawrence for a few years. I was, um, a very sort of rebel in a very rebellious kind of hot mess time mm-hmm. in my life. I, um, wasn't a really serious student. I wasn't really finding my way, even though it was all there for me. Um, and I ended up dropping out my junior year. Uh, and not that long afterwards, a couple of years afterwards, uh, my parents were in, um, a, very bad car accident that killed my father Mm. and that badly injured my mother. And at this point I was 23. And it was then it was like, my life was sort of sundered in a way. Mm -hmm. Uh, I was their only child. And I, um, I ended up, you know, when I was grieving my father and, you know, just, shell shocked. And, um, I ended up and I was taking care of my mother and trying to, you know, get her. She was in, she was in a rehab for her injuries and then eventually, uh, moved her into New York from New Jersey where they lived. Um, I called Sarah Lawrence and asked if I could come back. You know, I don't know, I don't know if you could do such a thing today. (laughs) Um, 
I think you could at Sarah Lawrence, but there aren't many institutions where you could do that. And I just mm-hmm. called, I called the Dean of Students and, and they, they let me come back and that changed everything. Um, I think in part because I was broken open in part mm-hmm. because I had a story to tell, uh, mm-hmm. even though I wasn't actually really ready to tell it, but I had a kind of a burning story to tell, to try to find language for. And that's really when I began to write as a, as a path and, um, as a, as a practice and with, with the sense that maybe this could be my life. And I ended up staying at Sarah Lawrence graduating and then staying and going to graduate school there and getting my MFA again. Like I, I don't actually think I applied for the MFA program there. I think I recall Grace Paley, like saying to me, you know, sweetheart, there's the door to the graduate program. That's where you belong. Mm-hmm. Go there. And that's your next step. And I mean, it, it's, it, it was a lesson for me that I continue to take to heart of the power of mentorship and teaching and the way that it can completely transform um, our lives. That's fantastic. And I know you talk in, in the book Devotion about uh, your formal meditation practice or, or things that you do. So I wonder if you could say a little bit about that. Yeah. Um, it was quite some time after, you know, I, I was always a very disciplined writer and I was disciplined about other things. Um, but I didn't have any kind of formal, um, spiritual practice, um, or meditation practice. I've shied away from anything that smacked of, um, what should we say of, you know, of organized religion. I was raised, um, in an Orthodox Jewish family. And, you know, one of the things that I realized as I was writing devotion was that that had left me with a feeling that when it came to belief of any kind, it was all or nothing. Mm -hmm. And, And I couldn't do all so all that was left to me was nothing. Mm-hmm. And I lived that way for a long time until I uh, became a mother. Mm-hmm. And so we're talking about my son was born in 1999. So it was when he was a little kid and he started asking me those like perfect spiritual questions that little kids ask, you know, mm-hmm. what do you believe? What do you think happens when we die? Where do we go? Is, you know, is there a God? And, and what I realized was happening is that in, you know, attempting to respond to him, I wasn't really responding. I was giving him, you know, what I came to think of as the smorgasbord approach, you know, uh-huh. some people believe this and some people believe that. And, you know, his little face would just kind of fall, you know, like you're not telling me what you believe. Mm-hmm. And, and I didn't know. And so in around, mm, 2007 or so, I realized that I wanted, I wanted, it began with what I wanted for my son. And then it ended up with what I 
what I wanted for myself. But mm-hmm. what I wanted for, for my son, Jacob, was I wanted him to have a mother who had sat in the questions, mm-hmm. you know, who had, who had interrogated the questions, who, um, who had thought about the questions, the, the big questions. And, um, and I, and, and, and I did what I had then been doing for a long time, which is I had too much resistance. Always what I would do was to embark on a writing project that would force me to um, force me inside my very resistance. Mm-hmm. I had done that in many other ways um, at other times. Um, whenever I was afraid of something, uh, and still to this day, whenever I'm afraid of something, that's what I will do is I will uh, begin to try to to write about it and find my way in. And when when I when I did that, I remember the moment and you know again, around 2007, I had had a long time yoga practice. I've been practicing yoga since 1990. And I was in the middle of my yoga practice and, I was in a balancing pose and I suddenly just saw the word devotion appear before my eyes and nothing like that had ever happened to me. I mean, I'd never, I don't see words. I don't walk around and see words. Mm -hmm. I saw that word and I knew what it meant. I knew that it meant, I knew that it was a title. I knew that it was an entry point and that I was going to be embarking on a kind of spiritual journey. Um, and I was not happy about it. This was not what I wanted to see floating before my eyes was the word devotion. And, um, and I, I began just in my own unschooled, um, you know, no idea what I was doing kind of way to sit a little bit. Um, I'd always, I'd always sat a little bit because of yoga. Um, so I had a kind of reference point for, um, that, that feeling of, um, being in the present moment. Um, but I, I didn't know how to create a a practice for myself. And I was in a yoga class one, one day and the teacher during Shavasana, the teacher read a poem and the poem was by a poet I had never heard or read before. And I made a mental note because it really pierced me. And I went home and I looked up the poem and the only reference I could find to the poem was, um, a book called yoga and the quest for the true self mm-hmm. by Stephen Cope. Mm-hmm. And so I ordered Stephen Cope's book for the poem. I mean, happy. (laughs) I I mean, it just, I had no intention of reading yoga and the quest for the true self. I just wanted the poem and it was the only place I could get it. And the book arrived and I cracked it open again, not something, I mean, books arrive every day and sometimes they sit there for months, if not years. This one I started reading. And once I started reading, I couldn't stop reading it was feeding me and speaking to me in a way that nothing had for a long time. And then I, I had been invited to, um, one of those author 
reception fundraisers at a mm-hmm. library in New England, uh, about an hour from where I live. And I went and it was a hot summer day. And it's one of those things where they're selling your books and you sit in, behind your books as if you're like the vendor um, mm-hmm. and you're selling, you know, tomatoes at the farmer's market. It's all, always very strange. And I was kind of grumbling to myself about being there. It was a very hot summer day. And the author next to me leaned over to say hello. And he shook my hand and he said, hi, Steve Cope. (laughs) That's great. And I just, I mean, I was speechless. I I had his book in my purse. I pulled it out of my purse. I was, (laughs) it's you. And we then proceeded to talk for the next two hours completely hit it off. And he, um, as many of your listeners no doubt know, um, was um, director of something called the Institute for Extraordinary Living, I think. Yes, I think that's it, Extraordinary Living. At at Kripalu in in the Berkshires. And when I, when I got home, I looked, I looked Stephen Cope up and he had a, a workshop coming up at, um, at Kropalu. And I had never been because I was the mother of a little kid. And somehow I felt like my husband and child could not get along without me for 48 hours Mm -hmm. and that everything would fall apart if I, if I went away. Um, but I signed up for his, um, for his retreat and he was teaching that weekend, um, with, um, a meditation teacher and writer who I didn't know because I didn't know that world. I did not know that world at all. And, um, and her name was Sylvia Borstein. Mm-hmm. And I got there and settled in that first evening. And it's so funny and interesting to talk to you about this, Sharon, because I, I now have been teaching myself at Kropalu for 10 years. And mm-hmm. I was so uncomfortable when I got there. I felt like I had landed on, I remember calling my husband and saying, I don't know if I can do this. I don't know. If I can do this. <laughs> Everybody's wearing Birkenstocks and nobody's talking. And, and I, I just don't know if I can, be, I, these aren't my people. And my husband who <laughs> is a former war correspondent, he sort of, he paused on the other end of the phone that night and he said, I know how you feel, honey. I, I remember landing in, in Rwanda. And oh, <laughs> Okay, I think I can. I think I can handle a retreat in the Berkshires for two days. <laughs> See, uh, what year was this that you did your first? This would have been like two thousand seven. Yeah, so you missed our real hippie days when we were young, and yes, check into that room, and there'd be a foam mattress on the floor, and somebody <laughs> once came here at IMS into the office and said, "There's some mistake. There's no bed," and we said, "Yeah, we don't have beds." You know? <laughs> So, no, this, so this was right? Like yeah. this is, yeah, this was like a whole different, whole different world, but still like really new to me. And I, yeah. I remember settling in in the Great Hall where the um, where the retreat was being held, and Sylvia Borstein began speaking, and it, her voice and her cadence and her words and her laugh and her. Everything about her sort of went through me like I'm home. I'm home and this is my person. This is, she's speaking my, my language. She's piercing something um, in me. And I, I never would have, you know, I'm not a hand raiser, you know, at these things. And like never have been, 
I don't tend to line up to go talk to the teacher. I still don't. And so that weekend, um, I guess it was lunchtime on Saturday. I walked into the Kripalu, um, uh, you know, room, you know, the, 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 the cafeteria mm-hmm. or the, and, um, got my tray and my fork and my knife and my, my bowls of various things. And I went to sit, um, at a table that looked like it had room. And there was a, there was a young woman sitting across from me. And I, I said, hi, I'm Danny. And she just looked at me and I said, I'm, I'm Danny. And she lifted up her sweatshirt and showed that her name tag said eating in silence. Oh, <laughs> okay. All right. okay. This is not going very well. And just at that moment, there was this voice right to my left, right at the, the, the head of the table saying, is this seat taken? And it was Sylvia. Uh, you have like the most magical life. It's kind of fascinating it, just to hear. Well, if, 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 if I pare it down to, Th- those were magical moments. Yeah. Uh, and they were, they were moments that, um, I recognized, I think. And that is probably a big difference between like sort of my life as, as an adult and my life when I was younger. I mean, there's this, this beautiful Hebrew Sabbath prayer that I keep tacked up to my bulletin board above my, my desk. And it, and the beginning of it goes days pass and the years vanish and we walk sightless among miracles. Mm-hmm. And I think I was at a point where I just wasn't, I wasn't, I recognized the miracles when they happened. Mm-hmm. And, and then, you know, and Sylvia, you know, as, as you know, cause you know, she's one of your dearest friends has become in these last, you know, 14, 15 years, one of my dearest friends. Mm-hmm. And, and, but it was the beginning of my, it was, it was the beginning of my practice. This was a long winded way of saying, um, I practice every morning. Um, and I have for a long, t- I mean, a, a, you know, a relatively long time now, mm-hmm. you know, 14, 15 years. And, um, and I've come to experience it as inseparable from my writing process. Mm-hmm. Can um, you say something about that? I mean, that's really, uh, amazing and something I can, I can well understand. Yeah. I, um, the, the feeling of sitting and whatever the, um, whatever the, the, you know, the, 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 the drifting or, or, or frantic thoughts, whatever the nature of the thoughts are, um, I came, I came to realize that the feeling of, oh my God, how much longer can I possibly sit here? Surely 20 minutes have gone by. I, I'm hungry. I'm thirsty. I should write that thought down because <laughs> I, I won't remember it later if I don't. And it's very important. Um, all of those seem to come at a moment where just at a moment before a place of a kind of like uh, arriving at a deeper place, mm-hmm. um, you know, and the, the, the sitting through that, um, has its own, um, I don't want to say rewards, but ha- you know, uh, there, there's a kind of deepening in the sitting through it. And, um, 
in writing, I mean, a, a difference is in, in, in seated meditation, if, if the thoughts win, you know, they, you know, they've won because you've gotten up and you're staring into your refrigerator or, or, you know, you've, you know, you've gone and gotten a pad and written, or you've just mm-hmm. stopped, um, in writing, it can actually, you can look like you're still doing the same thing, but you've actually toggled over to check your email mm-hmm. or, mm-hmm. you know, you're still in the same position. It could look from 10 feet away, like you're doing the same thing, but the feeling of being about to be pierced by something. I mean, mm-hmm. I, I ended up writing an essay about it because I was, this is years ago. I was, I was working on a piece of fiction and I was writing a scene where two characters, a brother and sister were walking up a staircase. And it was a very intense moment between them. They hadn't seen each other in years. And suddenly I thought there's a piece of furniture on the landing of that staircase. I need to know what kind of piece of furniture that is. And before I knew it, I had was, I Googled, you know, Biedermeier, you know, antique dressers. And I was on the website of, you know, an mm-hmm. antique store in Paris and they were so expensive that suddenly that made me realize that I hadn't paid my son's camp tuition yet. So I clicked over to the camp to take care of the tuition. And in order to pay the tuition, you have to upload a picture of your kid. So suddenly I'm in the photo app on my, on my computer looking at old pictures. And now I'm gone. Like now I'm like in, in like down memory lane and looking at pictures of my little kid or my mother-in-law before she started losing her memory. And and so I wrote this essay. The title of it is actually hashtag am writing, <laughs> which the writers who are listening know is like a popular hashtag on Twitter. And every time I see it, I think, no, you're not, you know, and I'm you're not, Twitter. we are on Twitter right now. And that is not hashtag am writing, but that's the, that's the, the connection for me is that my meditation practice, um, there's a, there's kind of a training ground that supports my writing practice and vice versa. Um, because I think I, I mean, these days, you know, in this last year, it's been tougher, Mm -hmm. um, because of the pandemic and, and politics and everything else, but to really catch the mind in the process of, becoming snagged and beginning again. Mm-hmm. And those, those two, I mean, I, and I, I feel it so in intensely in my own, in these two practices that, um, that for years now when I teach and I have Sylvia to thank for this too, because mm-hmm. I remember I was about to go teach a Kripalu and it was a writing, writing workshop. Kripalu runs writing workshops and I was teaching one and I spoke with Sylvia before I was about to begin the weekend. And I said, you know, I'm thinking about leading some meditations or I'm thinking of leading a meditation. And she said, lead a lot of meditations. <laughs> and I, I had needed permission because I'm not a meditation teacher. I'm, you know, I, I needed permission somehow to feel that that would be something valuable. And it's become something, I think, that uh, now even when I'm teaching in an academic institution, like I'm teaching 
you know, at a university, I still lead meditations around that table. Um, and I'm one of, I think, very few professors who ever do that. Um, because the feeling, I mean, one of the things that I do now is I'll lead a, I'll lead a meditation and at the end I'll give instructions to, um, to have everyone continue to keep their eyes closed and then I'll read something. And what I'll read is often a poem or a small piece of prose, um, little bit of Virginia Woolf, um, this gorgeous poem called um, Could Have by Wisława Szymborska, who's uh, the, she was the Polish Nobel laureate. Um, and I'll read something that a busy mind might not be able to take in. Um, and then I'll ask people how they think that they may have been able to hear that poem or receive it mm-hmm. after five, eight, 10 minutes of, you know, seated meditation. Um, and, and then I'll have them go straight into a writing prompt where they can then, you know, do a writing exercise without really, you know, it, it reduces the snag factor. It reduces the inner sensors. Oh, I can't do this. I don't know what I'm doing. I'm so, you know, fill in the blank. I, you know, nobody will care. It's dumb. Somebody else has done it better. You know, all of, all of those voices it just really does something to quiet those voices. Well, I so resonate with that thought of the path of writing as self-reflection and self-knowledge is being really similar to say mindfulness and uh, in all kinds of different ways. I've, I've often said that, you know, cause I tend to write books around topics that are kind of elevated, like love, faith, you know, uh, that the temptation for me as a writer is to get kind of highfalutin. And I look at some of that and it's like excruciatingly painful to read. And I think, Oh God. And, and just the effort to like, um, kind of come down, you know, bring my energy down as they would say in Aikido. Mm -hmm. And, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, when I was really, really stuck, say writing faith often, I was stuck and uh, it was very difficult. And I remember talking to various people who were writers and, and they would say things to me like, just tell the truth. It's basically like, just tell the story, you know, don't embellish it. Just tell the story, tell the truth. And I remember talking to Susan Griffin right at that time. And she said to me, "Um, you have to stop thinking of yourself as the person who's writing this book and think of yourself as the first person who gets to read this book. Mm. And that took away all that kind of perfectionism, not all of it, but a good bit of the perfectionism and, uh, you know, need to be the one who is somehow channeling all this. And, and uh, it was a much better feeling and much more effective. And so resonant with a mindful perspective. I, I love that. You know, it's, it's, I was talking to my, my son, this morning, who's uh, away at college, and he asked me recently to send him. I, you know, I occasionally, I mostly sit in silence, but I occasionally will do a guided meditation, especially during times that are particularly noisy or mm-hmm. fraught. And he asked me uh, to 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 send him some, um, 
And uh, two things about that. One is I had sent him one. It's like a very simple Reiki meditation. Mm-hmm. Um, and it includes the five Reiki principles. Um, and one of the Reiki principles, and I hadn't really known much about, about the Reiki principles at all, but one of them was do my work honestly. Mm. And I just loved that. You know, they were, you know, for, you know, just for today, do not anger, just for today, do not worry, just for today, uh, give, give thanks for life's many blessings, just for today, do my work honestly. And then the last one was just for today, give, um, uh, be kind to all living creatures. Um, but I often that do, do my work honestly strikes me because I'm usually sitting right before I'm about to start to do my work. And, you know, what does it mean to do my work honestly? And, and then the second thing I wanted to say about that is I actually brought up to Jacob, um, your work because, um, it's, I was going to say it's ironic, but it's not really ironic. It makes perfect sense that that would be like that, that coming down, you know, that sinking in would be something that you grapple with Mm -hmm. because the grappling with it is actually the thing that, you know, people who don't grapple with it are the ones who end up with work that does feel like it has lots of curlicues and Mm -hmm. um, uh, embellishment and, and and e- your work is so um, in the in the best possible way plain spoken, um, and that's the thing that you know that sort of I feel like I'm using this word pierce too much, but like to me, great teaching does pierce, mm-hmm. um, but it doesn't need a lot of bells and whistles to do that. Yeah, that's great, and. Uh... You're also bringing Sylvia very much here, which is a wonderful, a wonderful thing. Um, because when you talk about plain spoken, I mean, she really, uh, you know, and, and so funny to boot. So that's really delightful. Um, I want to talk about your podcast before time escapes us completely. So you recently la- recently launched a podcast, Family Secrets which is all about story. And I'd really love to know what inspired that. Thanks. Yeah. I mean, I never, I mean, I'm just going to say it was another happy accident. Um, but what happened is, you know, my, my, my most recent memoir inheritance, um, was about the, um, discovery of a, uh, really gigantic, secret in my family. Um, mm-hmm. and I had always, I had always known that there were secrets in my family and I've always written whether in my novels or in my memoirs. I mean, why multiple memoirs really? I was mm-hmm. digging, you know, there was something I didn't know that I was digging for, but I never ever imagined that the secret was me, that I was the secret that, mm-hmm. that my, my father, um, my beloved father who, you know, as I mentioned, died when, when I was 23, Mm -hmm. uh, in a car accident, he had not been my biological father and I had never known that. And my Mm -hmm. parents had, um, I think very much products of their time. Mm -hmm. They had, um, they had, they had kept it from me. Um, and there were many, many, many shockwaves around all of that. Um, and, and, Inheritance is a book that explores 
all of those shockwaves and also the implications and the the history, you know, the, 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 the history of, you know, my parents and, and the time that they, you know, made a choice to start a family in it. And so when I finished the book, actually, this is going to bring us back to Sylvia again. As I finished the book, um, Sylvia, I asked Sylvia to be um, an early reader. And I sent her the manuscript. I sent the manuscript off to uh, the Bay Area where she lives. And she called me when she had finished it. And it wasn't the first time she was my, she was also one of my very early readers for my last memoir, Hourglass. And she's a wonderful reader. Um, and she read Inheritance and she, um, she loved it. And we had a, an amazing conversation about it. And during that conversation, she proceeded to tell me a story of a family secret of hers. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And while we were on the phone and she's a remarkable storyteller and I was glued to every word um, and on the edge of my seat. And it was kind of a painful but beautiful story. And I, I remember thinking, I wish I was recording this. I wish people could hear this. This is such an amazing story. And when I got off the phone, I thought, I wonder if there's a podcast about family secrets because family secrets are so... Um, you know, omnipresent. I mean, show me a family that doesn't have any secrets. Mm-hmm. And, and they're also, every single one of them is different. Uh, and, and the ripple effects and implications of them are, are never the same. And, and so, so that's, that's how it was born. And, and when I, uh, started to, um, to, to actually create the podcast, um, and I, and iHeart was producing it, um, the, uh, the, the people at iHeart said, well, let's like, let's do a pilot. Let's, let's try one and see how it is. I didn't realize that meant I was auditioning. I just thought, okay, <laughs> <laughs> they, they kindly didn't tell me that. And so therefore I wasn't nervous, but it coincided with Sylvia making a trip East, um, because she and I were going to do an event together mm-hmm. locally, uh, near me in Connecticut and she was staying with me. And so they sent a sound engineer and Sylvia was my house guest and we went down to my basement and we recorded this conversation and, and that ended up being an episode in my first season. Mm -hmm. Um, But that was the beginning. And, and since then, you know, there's been four seasons of 10 episodes each. Mm -hmm. Uh, I've done 40, I've had 40 of these really deep dive conversations with just amazing guests um, with amazing stories um, working on the fifth season right now. It's so fantastic because it's really, I mean, you're right. It's, it's a universal process and it, it's at the same time so individual in each way. And, and the role of story is, is a powerful kind of reflection because they're the stories we tell ourselves about ourselves and the stories we tell about others, the ones others have told about us that we've kind of yeah. believed and, you know, there's layers and layers and layers of influence and in how the the world, I, I mean, I was talking to somebody at one point, I said, I think architecture tells a story about us, you know, everything tells a story about us, yeah. like you're in a wheelchair and 
traveling, you know, down an elevator for 14 flights to, to go across the hall and back up, you know, like, you know, or not. And so, uh, to realize that and to sort of craft it, you know, seems to me, uh, an incredible thing. And, and the creation of the, and the sustaining of the podcast series gives people a vehicle, you know, for really looking and, and, uh, looking at their lives in, in a whole deeper way. Yeah. That was something that was, um, that I couldn't have anticipated. And that's been, um, such a beautiful thing is that it's really created a community as, as has my book, you know, really mm-hmm. created a community because, you know, where there are secrets, I mean, I've been thinking so much about shame for the last mm-hmm. bunch of years and, mm-hmm. you know, where there are secrets, you know, there is silence. Um, why is there silence? Uh, very often because there's shame, you know, thrumming beneath the silence. Mm-hmm. What What is the recipe for eradicating that shame? Um, in part, I mean, not to be reductive because it's all really complicated, but speaking, speaking it. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And, um, you know, that, 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 that sense that, if that if we knew what you know you know if if we were able to share what what is our deepest fear shame mortification all that really would happen would be people would nod and cry and mm-hmm. you know have some version of me too and and you know i think i think that with family secrets um you know, I recently said to somebody, it's like, it's like, it's like a feel good show that makes you cry first. <laughs> because in the end, you know, the people that I, it's not a show about confession at all. Mm-hmm. Like I'm so not interested in that. Um, it's, 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 it's about, well, so what does it mean? What, what meaning, what meaning do we make of this now? You know, at, at, mm-hmm. at every single guest I ask, and I, it doesn't always go into the final episode, but every single guest I ask, um, do you wish you hadn't found this out? Mm-hmm. And no one has said, yes, I really wish I hadn't found this out. Mm-hmm. No one. In fact, Sylvia's response was hilarious. It was, I'm sorry, what? What? <laughs> Wait a minute. No, 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 no. <laughs> she couldn't even compute sure. the question. It's <laughs> great. Well, Danny, I wonder if we could close out this conversation by your reading a short passage from uh, one of your books. Yes, I would love to. Thank you. Um, so this is near the beginning of Inheritance, and I think it'll be clear why I've chosen this. And it's to set it up, it's just after I've discovered that my dad was not my biological father. I woke up one morning and life was as I had always known it to be. There were certain things I thought I could count on. I looked at my hand, for example, and I knew it was my hand. My foot was my foot, my face, my face, my history, my history. After all, it's impossible to know the future, but we can be reasonably sure about the past. By the time I went to bed that night, my entire history the life I had lived had crumbled beneath me like the buried ruins of an ancient forgotten city. 
A Zen meditation made popular by the 20th century Indian sage Ramana Maharshi goes like this. The student begins by asking and answering the question, who am I? I am a woman. I am a mother. I am a wife. I am a writer. I am a daughter. I am a granddaughter. I am a niece. I am a cousin. I am, I am, I am. The idea is that eventually the sense of I am will dissolve. Once we're past all our many labels and notions of what makes us who we think we are, we will discover that there is no I, no us. That will lead us to a greater understanding of the true nature of impermanence. The exercise is meant to go on long past the most obvious pillars of our identity, the ones beyond question, until we run out of all the ways we think of ourselves. But what does it mean when the I am breaks down at the very beginning of the list? Mm. Wow, thank you. Thank you. It's wonderful being with you, uh, even though we can't see each other (laughs) or hug. (laughs) I look forward to when we can. And in the yes. meantime, it's it's been wonderful to talk with you and hear your voice. Okay. Thank you so much. Thank you all for joining us today. Uh, to learn more about Danny's work, you can visit www.dannyshapiro.com. This has been the Meta Hour podcast from the Be Here Now Network. May you be safe, be happy be healthy, and live with ease. Hey folks, thanks for listening. To learn more about Sharon and her ongoing teaching schedule, as well as online courses and a free guided meditation, check out her website at SharonSalzberg.com.